come on, you're going to have to help me out. I'm just as tired as y'all are. When I say praise the Lord, it's customary for y'all to return that. So praise the Lord, everybody. There you go. Somebody said to me before service, said you're going to have to keep me awake. So I'll do my best. You ever had God just put something in your mind and he won't let, let it go and it's just there? And every time you turn around, you, you see it. And, and even when you're not looking for it, you find it. Well, that's kind of where I am today. And I, I learned from great preachers, not that I'm a great preacher, but I learned from great preachers that said, don't apologize for your message. But I'm going to just tell you right now, I'm not really sure where we're going tonight. So that, that's kind of how it, it fits. I know where God kept me in the Word for the last couple of days. And I know what I kept seeing, but putting it from the Word to my brain to the paper seemed to be, be very difficult today. So we're going to just walk on a journey together. And guess what? If you don't like it, there'll be another Wednesday and maybe it'll get better. So that's where we are. But uh, how many of you were, were in the adult Sunday school class last Sunday? Okay, we've got a few. All right. Now I realize that, that we have other Sunday school classes that are going on. I'm well aware of that. We've got people scattered all over our, our building during Sunday school. But if you were here, uh, I, I, I was not in here. I teach the hyphen class, and we started the book of James. But uh, I, I know a little bit about what the lesson was. I talked to Dad a, a while and kind of got an overview of how he taught the lesson. I had seen the lesson several months ago, uh, just flipping through the book, saw it, so I wasn't paying attention to what, what day it was going to fall on, but I, I remember seeing the story. And, and so if you were in that class, there's going to be a part of you that says, well, pastor's just preaching what his dad taught on Sunday, and that's kind of true. But as you know, I I'm, I'm do my very best to read the Bible every day. Very rarely does that not happen, and if it does happen, then the next day I read twice as much. That's kind of my... My punishment, if you will. And, um, and so uh, every, every day I'm, I'm reading about seven chapters, uh, unless I'm in the book of Psalms, and then I break that down into five chapters at a time, 150 uh, uh, chapters in the book of Psalms, read five chapters at a time, and then that'll get Psalms done in, in, in a month. Unless you're in Psalms 119, and then I do just Psalms 119, because that's a forever long chapter. But what I have found... In my, my daily Bible reading is how often whatever I read in, in one chapter, because, and again, this is just to set the stage, but I read a chapter out of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. I read a chapter out of the history books. That's, that's all those, uh, you know, First Second Samuel and Joshua and, and Judges and, and Chronicles and Esther. And then I read a, a chapter out of the poetry books, Job through a Song of Solomon, I think. Then I read a chapter out of the major prophets, and then a chapter out of the minor prophets, and a chapter out of the Gospels, a chapter out of Acts, and then a chapter out of the Epistles. And it, it, it amazes me how many times I will read something in one division of the Bible, one, one, one way that the Bible's broken up, and then go over to Psalms, or go over to first and second, or, or uh, 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 the major prophets, minor prophets, and see correlation. And so a couple days ago, I was reading... And, and I, I read it, and I even wrote some stuff down in my Bible. And then I turned over to the book of Psalms 91, which is where my father spent quite a, a while on Sunday preaching. And I saw some, some similarities between them. And, and by the help of the Lord, 
I want to just take us in, a, in a, just a simple journey. I preached, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, I preached last August a, a sermon entitled, uh, You Matter to God. I don't know if any of you remember that, but I went back and I pulled open my, my notebook and I, I found that sermon again. And I want you to understand that you matter to God. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't mess up. Now, we may make mistakes and we may get ourselves sideways with the call of God and sideways with the, the, the understanding of God's uh, design for our life. But at the end of the day, God doesn't make mistakes. And in fact, I would even take you a step further that even if you have made a mistake, while that will grieve God, God still doesn't throw you away. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, we, we, see the, we see the picture of the potter that says when the potter was making that vessel, it was marred. Something was wrong with it. And the potter doesn't throw the clay away, but instead he squishes it all back down, puts it back on the potter's wheel, and reforms us again. He told Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I believe that same statement applies to you and I. That first off, God knew you before you were ever born, before you were ever conceived. God knew you. God knew what you were going to do. God knew how you were going to do it. And the plan of God doesn't change for our lives. There's a, And I don't know if it's, I've seen it in various different ways. I don't know honestly where it first came out. I don't know if it's an Aesop's fable, but uh, I've seen it many different ways. The story goes like this. There was a mouse who wanted to be someone great, but he had a small problem. He was afraid of the cat. So he thought to himself, if I could overcome my fear of the cat, then, then I, I would have it made. You know, I'm tired of living in fear of the cat. And so he started a long journey and, and he found, not that we believe in magic, but he found a magician. And he asked the magician, can you turn me into a cat? The magician took pity on him, said sure, said the magic words, and he became a cat. And oh, he was so excited. Now he was the, the, the top of the food chain. He was no longer a timid little mouse until a big dog came by and the cat got scared. So he thought to himself, if I could only be a dog, then I'd be someone great. And so he went to the magician again who obliged to transform him, transform him into a dog. And, and, and he became a dog and, and, and it was so wonderful and, and, and everything was great. He was the, the top dog. He was ready and, until he met a lion. And now he's afraid of the lion. And so the mouse said, if I could just be the lion, everything would be okay. I would be great. And so he goes back to the magician. And he lets the magic words be put on him, and he, poof, becomes a lion. The lion, invincible, the king of the jungle, he felt terrific. Everything seemed to be flowing out perfectly, and he walked with purpose until he met a man with a gun. And now he was afraid of the man. The man was wiser, the man more intelligent. And so he went to the magician, as the story goes, and asked to be transformed into a man. Now, the, the story's stops right there and, and whoever created this, this uh, fable says that the magician thought profoundly and replied, even though I could convert you to be a man, you'd still have the heart of a mouse and nothing can be done unless you change your heart. And that's where it ends. Great, you know, great wisdom. But I got to thinking that's probably not where I would have ended it. 
Because I would have had the mouse turned cat, turned dog, turned lion, go back to the magician and say, I want to be a man. And poof, they would have turned him into a man. And everything would have been good. That man would have been making a snack at his house in his kitchen when a mouse runs in. Now, not all men are afraid of mice, but I know some men that are. And I can see the man jumping up on top of the counter, afraid of the mouse. And then the mouse think, huh, maybe I should have stayed a mouse after all. That's how Brandon's fables would have been if I would have wrote it. Because when God creates us, he knows the path that we're going to take. He knows each step of the way. He charts the course. He plans your steps. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And I believe that there are moments in which good men do wrong things. And the steps get diverged. But that doesn't change the fact that God made you just the way he wanted to make you. There's a, a beautiful description of God's loving care that's found in what's commonly called the Song of Moses. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 records some of the last words of, of Moses before God brings him up on the mountain there in the wilderness and lets him see across the Jordan River, lets him see into that, that promise that they left Egypt for. And, and later on you'll find that God said, you know, because you struck the rock when I asked you to speak to it, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to let you go in it. I'm going to let you see it, but I'm not going to let you go in it. Uh, uh, we're we're going to let those who... Really, as, as far as I can find, only two people, original people, walked into the promised land. That was Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else, they, they passed away because they had, had, had brought God great grief, constantly complaining. And, and now Miriam has died, and, and, and Aaron has died, and now it's, it's Moses' turn. But before all of that happens, Moses begins to speak to the children of Israel. There's some great prophetic words that are spoken there. It, the things that if you're not careful, you'll miss it. But God prophesied in Deuteronomy and at the end of Exodus, God prophesied everything else that would come to pass in the Old Testament. You're going to find a king. King's going to mess you up. You're going to follow false idols. You're going to go into captivity. Life isn't going to be great, but I love you so much that I'll bring back to myself a remnant. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell, right? All of that God tells them. And so it is that you find this story begin to play out. It's very poetical. It uses, uses uh, uh, you know, grand language. Look at verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 32. First off, the he is the Lord and him would be Israel. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young and spreads out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him to ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of bashan and goats with the very finest wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood 
of the grape. It's a beautiful story of what God did. That God found him first. God found Israel and, 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 and had, had mercy on him, had compassion on him. Go look at uh, uh, Ezekiel and I believe it's chapter 14 if I'm not mistaken. Go look at, at the story where, where God says to, to Ezekiel that I, I found Israel. It was like a forgotten baby that someone had thrown out into the field. Uh, almost a type of abortion, if you will. Just, just we don't care about that baby. Throw it out in the field, and if it dies, it dies. But, but God walks by and sees that baby not swaddled. Nothing that should have happened uh, to a newborn baby had happened. In those days, they would have rubbed him down with salt, which was a, a, a way of cleansing the baby. They would have cut the umbilical cord. They would have wrapped it in swaddling clothes, and none of that has happened. And God cares for that child and God brings it up and, and it's an allegory. Later on, God says when that, when that child, that, that young lady, when it grew, uh, you know, it, it, it ran away and it didn't want what, what the master had given. Everything that she had, all of her clothes and great, uh, uh, you know, all of her blessings, she had forgotten that it was God that gave it to her. But it's that finding the, the one, and, and here it says he finds them in the desert land. And I don't believe that means the wilderness at that point. It's not that the Lord found Israel in the wilderness. It's that the Lord found Israel in Egypt, a desolate, dry, desert, no good things are in Egypt. And God finds that, that, that child of Israel, finds his chosen people. In a place that was howling and it wasn't good. He encircles him. I, I go back to, to another message I preached when I showed you the video of the, the wildebeest encircling their young. And, and, and the Cape buffalo encircling their young. That God surrounds them. Later on in the Psalms you'll find that it says that there's angels that encamp around about those that fear him. That God holds you in his hand and cups you in his hand like we would cup a, a, a firefly so we could protect it. God loves us that much. Keeps him as the apple of his eye. Have you ever thought about what that means? I have. In fact, I'll be honest. I was today years old when I finally realized what the apple of an eye is. Anybody know? The what? What? The, the apple of the eye is the pupil. That round spot in your eye, that's the apple of the eye. People, now watch this. Well, Mike, you don't have any. Can I touch your eyeball? Would you like that? No. I mean, think about it. You could handle a lot of stuff. But if I come to touch the eyeball, you'd recoil, right? You're going to protect that apple of your eye with everything humanly possible. You'll let somebody thump you on the arm. You'll let somebody tickle you maybe. You'll let somebody do some things. But you ain't going to let them touch your eye. In fact, you can't even watch videos of people touching their eyeball. You know, like when they show those LASIK surgeries and those things where they put the needle right in the eye and you just do what you just did right there, you start... So here's the thing. Many times we, we've used way, things that we understand. I'm not going to let you touch my eye. I'm going to protect my eye. God says as much as you as a human protect the apple of your eye. 
he says, I want you to understand, I'll go even more so because now we're talking about a divine one that says, I'm going to protect my children. With everything I have, I'm going to protect them. And, and like an eagle that stirs up his nest, that flutters over his young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing, bearing them on its pinions. Pinions are the, the outermost feathers of a bird's wings. It's usually what we would call the flight feathers, and, and it's there. And, and so there's some, some, some beautiful uh, words that you can go and look, and uh, I've spent time before, I spent some time today looking back through it. When it's talking about eagles, it's most likely not talking about the bald eagle. Bald eagle doesn't exist in the Middle East. And so some say it's actually talking about a, a vulture or a condor. Uh, others said it's, it's one of the eagles that would exist there. But, but even then, we, we can see it, and, and you can do a little research, and you can find through the Audubon Society and through uh, National Geographic and some other places, you can find this play out. How many of you have ever paid attention to the eagle cams that they put up nobody okay we got a few aren't nerds like I am they have cameras that that are 24 hours a day looking into an eagle's nest and you can log in and you can see what's happening in the eagle's nest which is really cool because last year in one of the eagle's nest mama eagle comes back and lays the head of a kitty cat right there so if you're like me that was really cool my wife that wasn't a great thing to show her. But, but you, you see them play out. They'll, they'll build a massive nest. The bald eagle, which is the eagle I'm most familiar with, they, they use the same nest over and over until those nests get gigantic. Sometimes the nest gets so heavy it actually break out of the tree because they keep using it. But, but sticks and anything, it's not very comfortable. And so then the mother eagle will pull out the down from her own body and, and find fur and find moss and find leaves and, and, and create a, a comfortable spot inside that nest that's soft and lay those eggs there, sitting on those eggs and making sure those eggs stay at the right temperature. And finally those eggs crack and then the mom and the, the, the dad eagle together will feed those chicks until eventually they're able to live on their own. Because at some point, those eagles grow up. And at some point, those eagles take off and fly as only those majestic birds can do. But it takes a little time. Somebody wrote, and I, I, I tried to look and see who it was, and, and, and I could find a lot of people that quote from it, a lot of people that have used this. But somebody came up with seven stages of that eagle's first flight. The demonstration, the discomfort, the danger, the decision, the direction change, the doing, and the deliverance. That, that the first, that, that eagle is sitting in its nest and it doesn't even look like an eagle, we think. It's still a little chick, but every once in a while you'll see that mom or dad eagle stand there on the edge and just hold out its wings and kind of flap it. And what it's doing is much like we would teach our own children how to walk, knowing they can't walk, but they've watched you walk a lot. And so it is that for a while, the, the mother eagle or, or the parents of the, the eagle will simply just demonstrate what it looks like to fly. And then after that, you'll, you'll, you'll find, in fact, 
some have said this is what it means when it says in verse 11 that it flutters over its young. I believe the King James Version may say it hovers over its young. And, and, and there were several commentators that said that hovering is not necessarily like they're flying and hovering, but that they're standing on the nest with their wings out and they're, they're kind of flapping. They're just showing that child what it's going to look like. Then that's the demonstration stage. Later on, you have the discomfort stage because here's the thing. As long as that nest is warm and comfortable and perfect, it's really hard for that eagle, that young chick, to get any uh, uh, motivation to leave. Because they're probably high up on a crag somewhere where the wind is blowing and the wind is howling and it's a long way down and it's comfortable right where they are. But so the, 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 the parents, the mother eagle, if you will, will begin to kind of stir up that nest and slowly begin to take away all of the, the cushion out. And pretty soon that eagle can't find a comfortable place to sit. What used to be a warm, nurturing environment is now something that, that may be a little prickly and may be a little pushy and may be a little pokey. And, and that discomfort stage causes that eagle to say, maybe I shouldn't stay here forever. And then you get to the, uh, the danger stage when the mother eagle finally kicks the, 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 the baby eagle out of the nest. And it happens. I, I've, I've watched all the National Geographic videos. Sometimes I see it out at my house. Now, now, there are legitimate times when the poor baby bird falls out of the nest. That's legitimate. I get that. But you know that most of the time when you see that bird on the ground, it wasn't an accident. They're learning to fly. And, and they're not going to die on there. They can, they can find a little tree and start hopping back up, and they'll do it again, and they'll do it again, and they'll do it again. It's a danger stage. you you, you got to get to a place where, where uh, God kind of pushes you. David said it this way in Psalms 119.67. It says something along the lines of this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. I'm convinced there was some crises in David's life that redirected him. Those moments of danger that, that he, he said, you know what, God's wanting me to fly and I, I'm going to have to either figure it out or it's going to be a really uncomfortable splat. Then you have the decision stage. Here's the decision. I'm uncomfortable. I'm standing on the side of the nest. I'm looking down at a very long drop. What am I going to do? Am I going to fly? Or am I going to stay here? Because at some point, mom and dad's probably going to head off. And I'm not going to get that food. And I doubt the rabbits live up there in the, in the nest. So what am I going to do? i got to make a decision. Do I jump? Do I fly? Do I try to figure it out? You know when it's really good to make a decision? Right after mom kicks you out of the nest. And you're hurtling to the ground at breakneck speed. And everything looks like a cartoon. You see it coming closer. And then everything slows down. And that eagle's going, I wonder what I should do. Should I help you out a little bit? Have you ever felt like that with God? That it seems like everything was going good and then the rug gets pulled out from under you? And you're hurtling down at breakneck speed and you're looking and you've got to make the decision. What am I going to do? Trust God? Spread my wings? Start flapping? Do nothing? Now, the author of these seven stages, he, he said the fifth stage is a direction change stage. And it's not so much that it's a physical direction, but it's a mental direction. And they compared it to repentance, where we say that repentance is a mental shift 
I was going this way. I don't want to sin anymore. I want to go that way. And there's a moment in that where that, that eagle, as it's falling, says, I don't want to go down. I want to go up. What do I do to go up? I've watched my mom do it. I've watched my dad do it. i got to flap my wings. And they flap like their life depends on it. It's the doing stage. I'm getting somewhere. Just, just I wanted to run through these seven because I liked how the author that I can't figure out who it is wrote. The doing stage. That the eagle can teach the young how to fly but cannot fly for them. That, that the Bible says in Galatians 6 and 5 that each one of us are going to have to bear our own load. We're going to have to do our own effort. Yes, the Lord loves us and yes, we're in a community and we're all believers. But at the end of the day, what are you going to do? And so he, he begins to flap his wings. And slowly but surely, maybe it slows the fall. But then you have this unique picture. That not every ornithologue, orno, whatever the people who study birds, they don't all agree. But first off, the Bible says it, so I agree with the Bible. And second off, there's enough uh, uh, places that you can find where, where people have, have found it and seen it happen. But there are recorded moments. I, I spent some time today and I, I read some people's first-hand accounts of seeing that, that young eagle jump out of the nest, get pushed out of the nest, whatever it happens. It has its falling, it's flapping its wings, but it's just not quite rising. It's not stopping. And they said we would watch that adult eagle swoop under it and let that, that eagle land on top and go back up to the nest and let them rest again. And it's not going to be where they stay. They're going to have to do all those other steps. Those other six steps are all going to happen again. There was an eagle, that, there, there, there was a mother eagle or a, or a parental eagle that said that eagle was born to fly. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. We've got to go through those six steps. But then at the end, if it's just not quite happening, rather than let my child crash and burn, I'll bear it up, spread out its wings. Go back to the Bible, verse 11. Spread out my wings, catch them. Bear them on those big old feathers until they can find their footing. You say, Pastor, that's a really cool, you know, story of natural life. And it, it sounds good, but where are you going with it? It's very simple. Look at verse 15. After all of this that God does for Israel. Well, first off, let me back up and say this. That the 40 years in the wilderness was because Israel disobeyed God. Okay? God never designed them to live in the wilderness for 40 years. He really designed them to live in the wilderness for about two years. And the reason God wanted to bring them into the wilderness was he had to bring them someplace to get Egypt out of their system. For 400 years, Israel had lived in bondage, had, had lived where they weren't really making their own decisions, and, and, and they were living in these great cities, and now you're going to take... Some people say up to 3 million Israelites, you're going to take them into a wilderness and you're going to expect them to survive. How many of you have been camping before? Like legitimate camping, not glamping. I'm talking about real camping. You've you got to think about that. I haven't done a ton of camping in my life, but, but 
I, I've, I've, done, I've done some, and, and lately I'll, I'll go to Arizona, and when we go camping, that's a little bit more like real camping. Because you have to bring it into the desert. You're not going to find it. There's no 7-Elevens in the desert. Now, we eat good. We have a, we have a it, it takes like three 18-wheelers to get all of our stuff to the camp. And we have a grill and, and all of that. So, I mean, we had deer steak and elk steak that, that, that we brought in. I mean, it was great. But, but in the, at the end of the day, we had to bring everything in. There, there's no water, like, legitimately in the desert. So you had to bring all your water in. We had bottles of water and buckets of water. And, and, and there's no um, toilet facilities in the desert. I'm going somewhere. I'm not just trying to be crude. I'm going somewhere. You have to think about that. You get four or five people in a campsite, you got to think about that. Well, guess what? All of that was true with Israel. So when you read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and, 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 and when you're going, Leviticus is the most boring book in the entire world. I get it partly. But do you know why Leviticus exists? Because it's happening right now. Anytime you get a group of people together, and I'm talking about a large group of people. It's happening in Ukraine and Poland. All of these refugees are coming out. So they're, they're, they're trying to escape the war. And so all these re- thousands and, and, and maybe up to millions are leaving Poland, are leaving Ukraine, going to Poland. Guess what's happening right now? Disease is running rampant because you've got a 1,000 people in a school that usually should only seat about 300. And you got a thousand people in there, and, and there's not enough toilet facilities, and there's not enough ways to clean themselves, there's not enough ways to get food. And so God said, if I send these three million Israelites out into the desert, they're going to just do whatever they want to do, and they're all going to die of disease. So I better tell them that there's a certain place, and, and again, I'm not trying to be crude, but go read the Bible. The Bible told them there's a place you do your business. Because you can't have diphtheria and cholera and all of that in there. And, 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 and here's how you're going to set it up. And, and, and here's where you're going get, to get water. And here's how you're going to make sure your herd survive. And if you get a, 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 a funny spot on you, don't, don't just let it go because that might be a bad spot. It might be leprosy. And so here's the test for leprosy. And, and if something starts showing up on the mud walls of your tent or the canvas of your tent, it, it could be a pretty bad bacteria. And so here's how you're going to cleanse it. Why? Because God loves his people. And so God brought them out and he said, just give me a moment to let me teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to govern yourselves. I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to grow. I'm going to teach you how to fight. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that, that I've got, that you have everything you need to survive. And again, how does this apply to you? Very simple. God didn't save you to then let you out and just find it out on your own. And hopefully, at the end of your lifespan, you make it to heaven. God says, not a chance. God says, no, I saved you. Now I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to give you steps because I want you to succeed. Do you know that God wants you in heaven? Do you realize that? I mean, that, that he's prepared a place for you. He's not just building a place. He's building a place for you. That there's somewhere in heaven, whether you believe it's your own house, your own mansion, or whether you believe it's a lot of rooms in one big mansion, I don't care how you look at it, but did you know one of them has your name on it? 
that the Lord said, I, I remember when you repented of your sins, and I remember when you were baptized, and I remember when you were filled with the Holy Ghost, and I've got your name on a door, and I'm not just hoping you get there. I'm going to do everything godly possible for you to make it. And sometimes it's hard. And sometimes he discomfits us. And sometimes he stirs up the nest because if you go back, you see uh, verse 15 that Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek and forgot the God, forsook the God that made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And then, I don't have time, but go look at all the rest of Deuteronomy 32. They forgot God, they left God in the dust, and God got pretty aggravated at them. But then, so, so I'm, I'm reading all of that. And then I, I get, so, so that's all, I think it was uh, uh, either Sunday or Monday, I can't remember. And then I turn the pages and I get to where I'm supposed to read. And part of that daily Bible reading that included Deuteronomy 32 was Psalms 91. Why don't you turn there with me? Because there's some of the same language. And there it says, he who abides, or he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and deliver you from deadly pestilence. He'll cover you, here's that word, with his pinions. That's those big feathers at the end of the wings. He'll cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You'll not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destructions that waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. It will not come near you. You'll look upon your, uh, only look at it with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And I want you to look at this next phrase. Because you made the Lord your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, no plague He'll command his angels concerning you, guard you in all your ways on their hands. They'll bear you up. If you strike your foot against the stone, you'll tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, the serpent. You'll trample underfoot. It's a beautiful picture. But then, and, and Dad helped me with this one because I was asking what he taught Sunday. You'll notice the next three verses, it changes who's speaking. The psalmist was speaking earlier, but now it's God speaking. Because, and, and, and if you'll allow me, I, I hope, hope I'm not wanting to add to the Bible, but just to make it personal, instead of saying he, I'm going to say you, okay? So if I say he, I'm talking about God, but, but if I, I want you to understand, because, so this is God speaking, because you hold fast to me in love, I will deliver you. I will protect because you know my name. When you call to me, I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you and honor you with long life. I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. I don't know if I'm doing any good right now. I don't know if I'm helping anybody because I might confuse myself sometimes when I preach. But when I saw 
Deuteronomy 32, and I saw Psalms 91, and I began to let them weave themselves together. I found a God who loves you so much, he don't want you to fall. Now, he's going he's gonna to get you on the edge of the nest, and he's going to discomfort you, and he's going to not make everything peaches and cream because you need to understand how to love him when things go bad. Somebody said it this way uh, uh, concerning um, submission, that you're never truly submitted until you submit to someone you disagree with. If you always agree, that's not submission, that's agreement. I'll follow you because I like what you say. But are you willing to follow someone that you might not agree with them? Case in point, submission to my parents is not just because I agree with everything they say. There was a point when I didn't agree, but I had to submit. Submission with your pastor is not just agreeing with your pastor. It's it's when pastor asks that hard question. Submitting to God is not just loving God when everything is perfect. It's trusting Him when you don't understand the why. But know this. God didn't save you to leave you hanging. And even if He's trying to enlarge your territory and even if he's trying to let you see greater and even if he's trying to let you learn to fly and soar and he kicks you out of the nest and you're pummeling or or, or hurtling down to the ground as fast as as inertia will take you, he's not going to let you die. If he's got to swoop in and catch you, take you back up, let's try it again. But then I I saw that, that in Deuteronomy 32, then they all messed up, and it was awful. But Deuteronomy or, or uh, uh, Psalms ninety-one tells you how to do it all the way right. Let him cover you. Let him protect you. One of the most poignant pictures of Psalms ninety-one four, and you can go Google it. You'll see a, a, a wildfire that has gone through somewhere, probably over in California or somewhere like that, and a a firefighter found the charred remains of some bird sitting on the ground. And just because we're guys and we do stupid stuff like this, he kind of kicked that charred remain and little chicks came out. And you can go find it online. You can find the picture. Beautiful picture of God that was willing to, 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 to lose his life to protect you. But then I like the fact that it doesn't just stay with what God does, the answer is what will you do? I will make God my dwelling place. And I love the fact in verse 14 it says, I will protect you because you know my name. And I've written down in my Bible that if you'll get to know God's name, he'll get to know your name. That that when you love God, he'll deliver you, he'll protect you, he'll be right there. When you call to him, you'll, he'll answer you. When you're in trouble, he'll be with you. He'll rescue you. It's all because of that incredible picture of a God that loves us. Like an eagle fluttering over its young. Under his wings, you'll find refuge. I wonder if we could stand today.